You're listening to the Writers Forum. The show is underwritten by the law firm of Alker and Rather LLC. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with author Elizabeth Graver about her new novel, Cantica. Elizabeth's writings have appeared in Best American Short Stories as well as the Pushcart Prize Anthology. Her story collection, Have You Seen Me, won the 1991 Drew Heinz Literature Prize, and she currently teaches at Boston College. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thank you, Mike. All right. Well, authors have sometimes told me that they start their novel with a story idea or a character idea. But your ideas for Cantica were more personal, correct? Yes. Cantica actually started with interviews I did decades ago with my maternal grandmother. Hmm. How did you go about reconstructing the memoir portions of the novel? So it was a very interesting back and forth with a lot of different pieces. The, the basic structure of the kind of novel's arc, I guess you would call it, comes from the migration story of my maternal grandmother. So she was a Sephardic Jewish woman who was born in Turkey in 1903, and her story, her migration journey took her from Turkey to Spain to Cuba to New York. And I had from her these beautiful tapes, but only probably an hour's worth of of voice um, from these recordings I did in 1985. So that was the seed. And then from there... I had to make a decision. Should I write this as nonfiction or fiction? But I'm a novelist. I love inner life. I love getting to inhabit different characters' perspectives. And I didn't really have enough information. So then I went into a lot of different kinds of research. Some of it was interviewing relatives who were still alive. My grandmother, sadly, had died in 1992. Um, And then I did travel and I I did reading. And it, it was a really a big mix of different kinds of research, and even in the novel itself, the kind of movement between fact and fiction can happen even mid-sentence. It it really is a novel, but it's got all these little points of both real history and real relationship to my family. So it was fun and hard. (laughs) Well, listen, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And you're pointing out that the novel, for those that are listening, is part fiction, part biography and part history. It really works well together. But let me ask you this, as a writer, did you know that that's what you were going to do when you started out? Did you know you were going to bring these different threads together? I never know too much when I start. I knew I had a voice and I knew I had a really, really interesting story, but I I did have to make decisions about genre. And so I ended up deciding to use photographs, which is pretty unconventional to have family photographs in a novel and some real names. And I don't think I knew that from the beginning. I knew that I knew that I wanted this book to have some relationship to my actual family history. Um, but it took me quite a while to find the form. Okay. Well, your family roots and, and those are the characters in the novel are, are, are tied up in the travails of the Shephardic Jews. For our folks listening, can you explain what and who Sephardic Jews were. Sure. So Sephardic Jews were and are um, Jews whose origins were in pre-Inquisition Spain and Portugal. So in 19, or sorry, 1442, um, 1492, sorry, mm-hmm. and around that period, um, there was the Spanish Inquisition when um, 
a quite thriving Jewish community was either forced to convert in Spain or killed or or expelled. And so a large population um, went to the what's now the former Ottoman Empire, including my family. And there they were they were welcomed, never given entirely full rights, but but you know, welcomed as guests, essentially, and lived prosperously and quite well there with a very rich culture and a very cosmopolitan culture, um, especially in Istanbul, which was called Constantinople at the time, for, mm-hmm. for many hundreds of years. Um, and they spoke a language called Ladino or Judeo-Spanish, which is kind of medieval Spanish mixed with various other contact languages that that um, they encountered during their migrations. So it's a it's a very beautiful and rich and interesting culture that I grew up with, although I didn't speak Ladino. It was my right. mother's first language. A mm-hmm. lot of it was a bit secondhand for me. So in, in writing the book, I really dove deep and I got to learn about the history and the music. And I sat in on a Ladino class and it was all very wow. moving. There's wow. people doing interesting work and making art and music Um out of Sephardic culture now, and I, I've met all kinds of wonderful people. Well, I'm, you know, that's, I'm going to ask you later a little bit about what you learned about yourself in this process, but for the moment, let me ask this question, I guess, and, and I guess it's applicable to all immigrants. When you are forced out, you become part of a diaspora, if you will, an immigrant loses their history. They lose part of their identity when they immigrate. Did you find that to be true of family members as you did your research, that they had to kind of recreate themselves? I did. I mean, my grandmother, Rebecca, on whom the novel is based and and centered, was an extraordinarily vivid and kind of passionate and robust person. And she carried her culture with her, but she also suffered a lot of loss, both, both cultural loss of being part of a community where she was kind of in the thick of things and and there were lots of people who spoke her language and things like that but also loss of family members because the family was very fractured by this diaspora so she ended up her parents stayed in spain and she ended up in the u.s and other brothers were in israel so i think there's both the personal losses and the and the wider cultural losses but one of the reasons i called the book Cantica, which means song in Judeo-Spanish or Ladino, is that I think that one of the ways that people carry culture is through things like music and song and mm-hmm. storytelling and recipes, things that are portable, really. Yeah, you yeah. can't, when you're a refugee or an immigrant who's fleeing a bad situation, you can't bring a lot of stuff. They've lost all their money, but they could carry these songs and these stories. And so that was one way that I saw the culture being reconstituted. And and for Rebecca in the novel, it's hard. She's doing it kind of against a lot of odds. And she's often sort of not doing it inside a very large community of people who know where she's from, but she still does it and shares it and takes pleasure in it. Yeah. Now, the story. let's go back to the novel then for a minute. The story starts off with the main characters living in Turkey. That includes Rebecca, her father, Alberto, and her mother, Sultana. But what seems like an idyllic time to Rebecca as a young woman was ultimately not for her family, correct? Right. 
Yeah, so interestingly, at the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, um, in some ways things in Turkey became more equal. Jews were given full citizenship, but there also had been in that period real atrocities like the Armenian Genocide. Right. Um, and and with the new excuse me with the new republic, it was actually in many ways a worse situation for a lot of Jews because there was mandatory military service but unequal treatment, and a lot of um, kind of tax and financial um, inequality. So in in the case of the family in the novel and my own family, they lost all their money. They'd been quite rich, and then they were poor. And they had a son who was of the age that he was going to be conscripted into the military. So they felt that they had to leave. They didn't yeah, want yeah, to leave, yeah. but they felt they had to. Yeah. Uh, Rebecca is the thread that runs through the entire novel, and she's a fascinating character. But I did note, and I'm curious how, how or why this came into the storyline, there's a lot of superstition that seemed to govern her life. Is that right? Yeah, so that is partly what I remember of my own grandmother, partly uh-huh. partly coming out of myself. I have kind of probably not very healthy, but tendencies to, you know, knock on wood or things like that. Uh-huh. Like for whatever reason, I'm actually not, I'm not religious. I'm, I'm, I'm very culturally Jewish, but I'm secular, but I'm, I'm a little superstitious, you know, who knows why. Um, but also there is a very long tradition of, superstition and kind of sort of traditional, not religious, but kind of folk folk right, practices right. involving superstition in Sephardic culture, and that are also, interestingly, often share a lot with, with the other cultures that they were living with at the time. So the Muslim culture and the Greek culture, etc., Greek Orthodox. So the evil eye is one example. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sure you saw in the novel, yeah. Rebecca gets it from her mother, but they pin these little beads onto their yeah, clothing, yeah. and they're not, she's not sure if it's really for a good reason, but it's what her mother did, it's what her grandmother did, and she's kind of like, nah, better to do it than not, and and I also viewed it almost as, again, like like the recipes and songs, it's something she can take with her that's, that's very small, and that feels like a little talisman of protection in in a world filled with tumult and, and disruption. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that's a great explanation for it. I wonder, as I've mentioned to you, my, my grandparents are uh, immigrants as well, and my grandmothers right. were also very superstitious. And I wonder a little bit if, if you kind of, as an immigrant, are thinking, where are you, God? And as a result, you kind of substitute a little bit of superstition with it. But I like your explanation better, that it's part of, it's part of that culture that you can bring with you. Now, in the book... You mentioned this already, and I, I was fascinated by it. Each chapter in the book starts off with a photograph and a time yeah. and a place that's identified. And I wondered, first of all, are these, in fact, family pictures? And if so, how much the picture helped you craft the narrative for the chapter? I love that question. They are all family pictures in, in the possession of my family, with the exception of one set of photos in a chapter in Barcelona in 1929, and those are stills from a film, an old film that ah, I found okay. that I identified my family in, unattributed, um, because um, it was a film about the Sephardic Jews at that time, and that itself had its own very complicated 
context. But yeah, the photos were very interesting. They did, on the one hand, reveal all kinds of things to me. What did people wear? You know, how were they standing? Who were they next to? What did their gaze look like? And at the same time, I was very interested in thinking about what they didn't reveal or how they might have lied or been set up to to kind of communicate certain things. So, for example, um, there's one photo that actually didn't make it into the book, um, but that I thought about and refer to in the book. And it's a photograph of my grandmother with her two little boys in Spain. And she was a dressmaker and her sons are wearing little sailor suits and they say U.S. on them. There's, um, there's, there, she's embroidered that. And, um, I had to really think through the context, but essentially she was living in Spain. She'd lost her first husband. She needed a new husband and to get out of Spain and was set up with a man in America, Mm -hmm. um, for an arranged marriage via Cuba. So, the way I understood this, and I, she's not around for me to ask her, was that she had to send a photograph to him to say, this is who I am, these are my sons, and she made them U.S. sailor suits ah, um, okay. to kind of say, here are these boys, they will be good Americans, they ah. will be your stepsons. So that was an instance in which the photo actually seemed to me to have a story behind it. I had to speculate, but a kind of story of, this photo is not just a photo, it's a ticket, you know, it's a kind of plea. Right. Well, you know, one of the things it did for me, anytime you read a novel, fiction novel, we have to imagine the characters, we give them certain attributes, you know, whatever. This actually gave me an image to kind of watch develop throughout. I thought it was a wonderful idea. It's almost like a second track of the book where I'm waiting to see, okay, well, let me see the next picture. Let me see, you know, where they're at now. So I thought it worked really well. In the book, Thank you. Well, in the book, we talked a little bit about this already, but Alberto and his family leave Turkey and they end up in Spain, I think in the late 20s. But yep. it, it turns out, and you've touched on this briefly, but I'm going to see if I can get you to expand a little bit. It turns out not to be the refuge that they had wanted, right? That's right. So it was very odd for a Jewish family to go to Spain, to go, quote, back to Spain. And when I've told people as I was doing research, particularly Sephardic Jewish people in Turkey, about this, some of them were like, no, that can't be true. You got that wrong. Mm-hmm. But it is true. And in fact, both my uncle Albert and my uncle David, who sadly passed away before the book came out, but were alive for much of the writing of it and, and have lots of memories of Spain where they were born. So the family went there, um, I think largely because the U.S. had a very kind of um, discriminatory immigration act in 1924 that kept out a lot of people, a lot of people like Turkish people and Jewish people. Mm-hmm. I don't think they had much choice. So they went to Spain um, and and I think weren't sure what they would find there. But of course, they arrived in 1924. And in the next decade, things got really, really difficult. There was the Spanish Civil War. Um, and then obviously in Europe, what was happening, you know, in the, in the early thirties with Hitler's rise to power. And so it quickly became, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire and a place that they needed to try to leave, but they really didn't have anywhere to go. And in the end, 
only Rebecca out of that family was able to leave because of this arranged marriage. She had a mm-hmm. sister already in New York. Right. Um, and that's what facilitated this. But yes, you know, it, it's a difficult story in that they end up thinking they're going somewhere for refuge. And that place then proves to be not a place of refuge at all. And one of the reasons that I guess folks were surprised and said, oh, you must have this wrong. They couldn't have gone back to Spain is Spain had a history of running the Jews out and or forcing them to convert, going back to the 1500s, 1600s, right? That's right. And, and, and there were very, very, there still aren't a lot of Jews in Spain, um, uh-huh. although there are a lot of people who are descendants, what's, what are called conversos or new Christians. Right. There are, there are quite a few people in Spain with Jewish roots, and you hear stories about, you know, I don't know why my grandmother would go into the basement and light candles on Friday nights. And there, there's actually quite a few Jew, people in Spain now who have rediscovered their Jewishness in one way or another, either culturally or even sometimes religiously. But it's a long sort of shadow history in that country. You know, there's a lot. At one point, um, Alberto says to Rebecca, his daughter, um, she, she's sort of balking at the idea of going to America. And he says, um, you should go there. There's fewer ghosts for us there. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. All right, so one of the other countries that plays in here, and I'm fascinated by this, I knew nothing about it, in a small role, is Cuba. And Cuba was apparently a jumping-off spot for many folks who were trying to come to the United States when there were these kind of draconian limitations on immigration. Can you explain a little bit how or why people would go to Cuba first and then try to go to the United States? Sure. And I know you recently interviewed my friend Aaron Hamburger and his his novel Hotel Cuba, inspired by his grandmother, looked at this from a different perspective. His grandmother was was a Russian Jew. So Cuba, um, in the case of my grandmother, allowed her to get into the U.S. because the man with whom she was having an arranged marriage, my grandfather, Sam, met her there. They married in Cuba and then she could enter as his wife. So it was a kind of way around the immigration system. But there were all kinds of other ways in which um, immigrants and lots of Jewish immigrants from all kinds of different places, both Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardics, were using Cuba in this way. Because if you stayed a certain amount of time, then you could get in. It was, you know, it's interesting because now, of course, Cuba's in an entirely different situation and really cut off from the world. But um, at that point, it was a kind of entry point. And, yeah. and so it was a sort of place that had this interesting Jewish community that was mostly temporary, although some people actually did, did stay. There was an ongoing community there, too. Yeah. All right. Well, look, let's come. We've been covering a lot of history, which I enjoy. But let's come back to Rebecca for a second. And you mentioned sure. this earlier. Rebecca loves to sing. What role, other, you, you've talked a little bit about this already, but what role did singing play in her life as she moved from place to place? Yeah, so I view singing partly as the carrying on of culture. Okay. I view it also as the holding on to language and, the, and, and also as a way to find beauty across languages. So she was very multilingual. She spoke Ladino at home, but she went to school in French which was common in the Jewish community mm-hmm. in Turkey at the time. And so she knew songs. She went to Catholic school. She knew beautiful songs from the nuns. So I view the music as almost this kind of 
crossing thread. Like music is beautiful in a way it doesn't matter what language it's in. And it's a way to kind of remember songs are easy to remember. Right. Um, but also a way to kind of flow between languages, between time periods, um, from childhood to prayer, because there's, there's, there's lullabies. There's also religious songs. There's songs that are kind of coming from the matrilineal folk tradition so all of those things. And then she also uses song as a way to connect and communicate. So she has in the U.S. a stepdaughter named Luna who has cerebral palsy and needs a lot of help. And one of the ways that Rebecca and Luna communicate and that Luna kind of relaxes and is able to then access her body in ways that she can't if she's approaching it more head on is through song. She'll tell Rebecca, don't say, you know, good job. Don't, don't watch me just sing. So I view song as this kind of healing, connecting thing. And it's also, of course, language. And as a writer, at least songs with words, it's poetry. And so I I view it as having all of these kind of, um, yeah, characteristics. Yeah. Yeah. All these characteristics. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Luna, and I, I was fascinated by Luna, and, and she, so Rebecca Ent marries, comes to America, and we meet the character of Luna, and Luna has, as you indicated, a significant disability. Her life is, at that point, somewhat tragic, but also eventually, I guess, triumphant. I wonder if I'm reading too much into it to suggest that her story, her life, and the way it develops in the book is a metaphor for the immigrant story, perhaps even for the history of Judaism. Huh, that's really interesting. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way. I mean, I was very interested in the kind of intersections in this book between the immigrant experience and other things. So the immigrant Uh experience and gender or social class or disability, all of which are really strong elements of, of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think you're right. I mean, I think that she overcomes. Yeah, she very overcomes. Very little, and she overcomes. I mean, I, I'm not sure I would use the word triumphant because I think there's still a lot of, for any of anyone in the book, really. I mean, yeah. I'm glad you thought that, but it, to me, it's more, it's a little, that's a strong word because okay. they're still kind of suffering a bit. Um, and, and she's never able to do certain things. But yes, there is this sense, you're right, of kind of, you work really hard, you you live in community, you figure out strategies that are not necessarily the most evident ones. There's a lot of like scrappiness and creativity, both in the immigrant experience in the novel and yeah. in Luna and in Luna and Rebecca's relationship. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, let me ask you this. Since part of this book is memoir and based on your family, what has been the family reaction to the book? So far, everyone's been absolutely lovely. I think for my mother, who's 86, it's been very moving. And Uh one of the reasons I actually was moved to write it at this stage, decades after those initial interviews I did, was because the next generation is getting older. And of course, I'm getting, we're we're all getting older, right? (laughs) (laughs) Every second. Um, So I I did feel that if I'm going to do this, you know, I'm 58. I did those interviews when I was 21. Like, let's get going. You know, let's let's do it while my mother can can read it. And while I can talk to her about her stories and my uncle's too. So very sadly, my uncle David 
died before it came out, but I spent days interviewing him and it was actually rather extraordinary because at the height of, he died in 2021. And so it was the height of the pandemic and I, I couldn't travel to see right. him as he was dying. But um, my cousin was with him and I got to read him from the pages that featured the character inspired by him over FaceTime while oh, he was wow. in the hospital. Oh, wow. So that felt like a real gift. You know, people yeah. could think in my family, this is not the, quite the right story. I'm very clear with everyone. It's fiction. It's my rendering. I'm not trying to write our right. history. Any Anyone else would write it differently. And there's many, many ways in which it's revealing me as much or more than anyone else. Cause, cause I'm inside people's heads as a writer, you know? Yeah. So it, it's not a, it's not a documentation, but it's an interpretation. And I think people are really grateful. I did a huge amount of research. So I, I kind of did a lot of work that other people now didn't have to do. You yeah. Know? Yeah. It's a wonderful book. It's, it, you know, anybody who Thank has you. any immigration uh, or any immigrant background in their family will be able to identify with it. Well, let me ask you this, and this, this probably will be my last question. Um, when I talk to fiction writers, straight fiction, um, they will say often that in creating a character and then in investing themselves in the character, dealing with whatever issues come up in the book, they actually learn something about themselves. In this case, because of the memoir aspect of it and your grandmother's involvement, I have to ask that question. In writing this book, what did you learn about Elizabeth Graver? That's such a big question. Let me think for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, you clearly, obviously, you learned a lot about your family, but right. in learning about the history and learning more about the, your, your grandmother and others, I wonder how that affected you and, and what you may have learned about yourself. I mean, I do think that partly reconstructing this journey my grandmother did and seeing at every stage how creatively and with what sort of strength and imagination and, and even joy she often responded to things was instructive to me that on the one hand, I'm a lot like her. I, I, I make stuff. I always have. I'm, I, I've always been, and we would do it together. I, I used to love to draw and mm -hmm. sew and write, but I'm also much more privileged than she is. And I think I can get hung up on small bumps in the road and kind of get overwhelmed. And so there was something you know, there were moments in the book where I was like, "Ugh, it's all wrong. I have to go back and rewrite for another year. And I'd feel sorry for myself. And then I'd think the journey I've chosen and I can do it. I'm really lucky to be able to do it. And look what she did. So yeah. the, the, there, yeah. it, she, it would put my life in perspective in certain ways, not in the kind of, oh, I used to walk 12 miles in the snow. You know, it didn't feel right. like a kind of platitude, but I, I think I was really struck by how lucky I am. And at the same time, how I think I did by having this particular family and this particular grandmother get these gifts of kind of making and remaking in a certain kind of grit from her yeah. that, that I'm really grateful for. Well, they're all part of you. I think at least that's what I would assume. Un unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the Writers Forum, and I've been speaking with author Elizabeth Graber about her wonderful new book, Cantica. I encourage you to go get it. 
Elizabeth, is there a website or other social media that folks can go to in order to learn more about you and your writings? Sure, and thank you so much for this. It's been lovely. I have a website at elizabethgraver.com that has lots of backstory about the book, little essays I've written, a video where you can hear my grandmother's voice. Oh, wow, wow. Okay. Yeah, Um, and I'm on Instagram. I think it's Elizabeth underscore Graver. Okay. I'm on Facebook, Elizabeth Graver author. I'm not on Twitter, but I'm out there. Okay, and the book is available on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and other places, right? Sure, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Elizabeth. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This edition of the Writers' Forum has been brought to you by the law firm of Alker and Rather, LLC. Tune in next week, Tuesday at 4 p.m. or Wednesday morning at 5.30 a.m. to hear the next segment of the show. 